If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. Also want to invite you out on Wednesday nights. We go in-depth on our weekend text. So on Wednesday we'll be in Revelation chapter 5 as well. All right, let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for the truths in in Revelation 5 that we get to have a window into your throne room, that we see you, Jesus, as the lion and the lamb, the lamb that was slain for our sins. So we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us, that you'd open up our ears and our hearts. We desire to hear from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were to try to sum up the message of the Bible, could you do it in a sentence or two? What's the Bible all about? What's God's message? Well, here it is. Jesus Christ crucified for our sins. That God loved us enough to send his only begotten son. That the son was willing to surrender to the father to pay the price for our sin. We see John the Baptist, when he saw Christ coming and he announces Christ as the Messiah, how does he do it? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Look at Christ in human flesh. He's the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. And throughout the Old Testament, God was showing us our need for a sacrifice for our sin. In Genesis chapter 22, there was a lamb for a man, Isaac. God called Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. Just about as he's ready to kill his son, there was a ram in the thicket. God provided a lamb for a man. We go further into Exodus and we see God providing a lamb for a family at Passover. They were to kill a lamb, put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. Judgment would pass over. A picture of ultimately Christ's blood covering our sins. It was a lamb for a family. A little further in Exodus, God sets up the day of atonement where there was a lamb sacrificed for the sin of the children of Israel one day a year. So a lamb for a nation, a lamb for a man, a lamb for a family, a lamb for a nation. And then here comes Jesus, the ultimate lamb of God. And John pronounces, John the Baptist, behold the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Revelation 4 and 5, we get a sneak peek into the throne room of God. The two chapters really go together, and we see Jesus as the lion and the lamb, the lamb that was slain for our sins. And those around the throne room of God, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, respond with, worthy is the lamb. There's a scroll that's in the hand of the Father, and this question is asked is, who is worthy to open this scroll? Who is worthy to take off these seven seals? And it's only Jesus. We examine that question in our lives, who's worthy, and very quickly we come up short. We come up short of our own expectations of ourselves. Man, I don't even fit the bill for my own standards let alone the expectations of others. But then when we look at ourselves compared to a holy God, who's worthy? 
Who's worthy to be able to stand before a holy God? None of us. The only one that's worthy is Christ. So this morning, I I hope that you're refreshed, that you're reminded in the worthiness of Christ that he came for sinners. He came for me. He came for you. He came for us. And he's the lamb that was slain for our sins. Verse 1 And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So John, in this vision, sees the Father seated upon the throne, and he's holding a scroll. And this scroll is sealed with seven seals. Now, there's some speculation exactly what is the nature of this scroll. Revelation 5 doesn't come out and tell us. But it is clear as we look at this, especially as we get into chapter 6, if you're reading ahead in chapter 6, that the seven seals are opened, that this scroll speaks of the judgment of God. That who is worthy to be able to open the judgment of God? And Jesus took the judgment of the Father upon himself to appease the wrath of the Father so that we could be forgiven this morning. So so Christ took judgment for us, and then also he pours out judgment on those who have rejected Christ. Barclay uh, puts it this way about the scroll. It's God's will, his final settlement of the affairs of the universe. This scroll is God's final settlement of the affairs of the universe. This is based on the idea that customarily under Roman law, wills were sealed with seven seals, each from a witness to the validity of the will. So if you were to put together a a will in Roman times, you would seal it seven times. So, So this is God's final affairs for the world and ultimately opening up his his judgment in verse 2 then i saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals a strong angel are there wimpy angels you know seems like every angel is pretty strong but apparently from john's perspective like this is an extra strong angel And this question is asked from the angel with a loud voice, who's worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? Who's worthy to take the judgment of God for us? Could we stand before a holy God? No way, we're we're not worthy. Only Christ is worthy to take the judgment of the Father. He's that perfect sacrifice for our sins. He's worthy then to be able to pour out judgment on a Christ-rejecting world. In verse 3, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. Let's consider this for just a moment because this is a very large statement. There's no one in heaven that's able to open this scroll. That means all of those that have known Christ, that are with the Lord, none in heaven that are able to open the scroll. There's none on earth. There's no one living right now that's worthy to be able to take this scroll. And then there's none under the earth. Unbelievers, those that have rejected Christ, they're not able to open this scroll. So when we think about this, we have to understand how much more worthy Christ is than all of humanity. Sometimes in sports, we like to make comparisons like who is the the best NBA player who's ever existed? 
And the dialogue usually goes between Michael Jordan and LeBron James. And I definitely think it was Michael Jordan, but we, we can have that discussion after church, right? But, but we like to try to make that comparison, right? Well, if we were to try to compare Christ with, with any others, they're not in the same league. That there's no way that we could compare. But yet there's something in us where we always want to look to a person. We want to look to, to people and make a, a hero out of a person But at the end of the day, all of us are sinners. All of us are fallen short. None of us are are worthy, and Christ is worthy. He alone is God. He alone is the God-man who's the sacrifice for our sins. Verse 4, So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. So John sits in the the gravity of this, that no one's worthy to take the, the punishment of the Father resulting in the forgiveness of sins. No one's able to, to be that perfect standard, to have that payment for, for sin. And it causes him to weep. There, there's no one worthy that, that's able to implement the, the judgment of, of God. And for us to stop and consider, man, what would my life be like without Christ? Not just in the here and now, but, but what if Christ wouldn't have come and died for my sins? and rose again. There'd be no heaven. There'd be no eternal life. There would be no hope in in this life. And for a moment, John's just sitting in this, and and he's weeping that there's there's no one that's worthy to be able to loose the seals and open the scroll, to even read the scroll or to look at it. In verse 5, but one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. The elders who spend all of this time around the throne room of God, they know Jesus. And they know that Jesus is worthy. And they point this out to John. Don't weep. I want you to behold. This is a command. I want you to look at the lion of the tribe of of Judah, the root of David. And he's prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And this is a key for us, I think, when it comes to understanding leadership. The, the elders were leaders, and the best leaders point people to Jesus. Amen? And all of the different factors of life. There's leadership in all different facets. We aren't the answer, but we get to point people to the one who is. We get to say, Jesus is worthy. And what they emphasize about Jesus is he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. What's really interesting, in verse 5, we see Jesus referred to as the lion. In verse 6, we'll see Jesus referred to as the lamb who, who was slain. We would think from a human perspective that the book of Revelation would refer to Jesus much more as the lion. Because lion speaks of his majesty, his might, his power, that he's sovereign, that he rules and reigns, that it would go along with the judgment that we see in the book of Revelation of a Christ-rejecting world. But what I found fascinating this week is you'll find that Jesus is referred to as the lion only once in the book of Revelation, and it's right here. And Jesus is referred to as the lamb 27 times in the book of Revelation. More than any other book of the Bible, 
It's emphasized that Christ is the lamb, the substitutionary sacrifice for us. Why would God emphasize that in the book of Revelation? It's important because as God is pouring out his judgment on a Christ-rejecting world, he's saying, I first paid the price for your sins. I was the lamb. I am the lamb that took your sins. I was the sacrifice for your sin. And the reason you're experiencing my judgment is because you rejected my son. You rejected my forgiveness. The lamb is the lion. God wants us to to understand that he's paid the price for our sins. This declaration, the lion of the tribe of Judah, this, this is important because Jesus comes from the lineage of Judah. Jacob had 12 sons. One of the sons was Judah. This became the nation of Israel. Again, from a human perspective, if we were going to pick a son that would ultimately bring about the Messiah, we would have picked Joseph. Joseph was a man of character that God used mightily. Had Ephraim and and Manasseh, but God did not choose the line of Joseph. He chose the line of Judah, and Judah was a man of sin. There comes a point with his daughter-in-law where he has sex with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, which is also included in the lineage of Judah. It's quite a story in Genesis Tamar is married to Judah's oldest. God kills the oldest son because of his wickedness. So she marries the second son, which was customary. God kills the second son because of wickedness. She was supposed to then marry the third son. But Judah's like, no, I don't feel comfortable with that. You must be a black widow, even though it was the son's fault. So Tamar takes things in her own hand. And she knows where her father-in-law is going to be traveling. And she disguises herself as a harlot. She knows the character of her father-in-law, and she was right. He comes and visits a harlot, what he thinks to be a harlot, and it was his daughter-in-law, and she gets pregnant, and that results in the lineage of Christ. Why would God choose that? Why? Because what's the unfolding message of the Bible? That Jesus sent his son for sinners. It's a message of his grace. So we have the majesty of God, the lion of the tribe of Judah, He came in human flesh, the God-man, the incarnation. And the root of David speaks of this as well. Jesus also came of the lineage of David. The promise to David was David wanted to build God a temple. And God told him, no, you can't because you're a man of war. And instead, God wanted to build David a house and said, your descendant is going to rule forever, and that's fulfilled through Christ. David was a man after God's own heart, but he was also an adulterer. He was also a murderer. The unfolding message of the Bible, God sending his son to die for sinners. In Genesis 49, there's a prophecy of Jesus coming from the line of Judah. Genesis 49 verse 10 says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Prophesying of Christ, Christ fulfilling that. In Isaiah 11, verse 10, there's a prophecy of Jesus coming from the root of Jesse, which was David's father. And in that day, there shall be a root of Jesse, 
who shall stand for a sign of the people. It shall be that the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. And the rest in Jesus is glorious. As we look at the lion who comes from the tribe of Judah and the root of David, notice, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. The language is interesting that Jesus has prevailed to open the scrolls. As God, he's able to open the scroll. So what has he prevailed over? It's the work of the cross. He prevailed over sin. He prevailed over death. Through his death upon the cross, through his burial and resurrection, he's accomplished justification for those who believe. And he's prevailed to be able to open the scroll and to loose these seven seals. In verse 6, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Jesus is center stage of the throne room of God. Someday we will be at the throne room of God as believers. Isn't that exciting? That's what our lives lead up to. That's the exclamation point. We're going to behold Jesus as the lamb that was slain. In Revelation 11, verse 8, it says, All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life, of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Even those that have rejected Christ see the validity of Christ. And this description of Jesus, once again, is the lamb that was slain from the foundations of the earth. Before God ever created the earth, he'd already determined to send his son. Jesus had already submitted to the will of the Father. God wasn't surprised when Adam and Eve sinned. Oh, he disobeyed. Eve disobeyed. What are we going to do now? Well, it looks like, Jesus, you're going to have to become a man. You're going to have to die a brutal death upon the cross and take the punishment for the sin. God already knew that. He knew that when he created Adam and Eve. And before the foundations of the earth, Christ was slain. Something unique about the resurrected body of Christ, Jesus has a physical resurrected body and he chooses for his wounds to still be seen in his resurrected glorified body. Again, obviously Jesus is God. He could have, in his resurrected body, have there be no evidence of the wounds from the cross. But instead, he chose for the wounds to still be there. To the point where Thomas, who was doubting his resurrection, what did Jesus say? Put your hands on my wounds. You can see it. I'm the lamb who was slain for your sins. When we see Christ, we're going to see him as the lamb that was slain. And isn't that going to be humbling? I think then we're going to fully realize, oh, this is what it cost for Jesus to die for my sin. In this understanding of the worthiness of Christ, he's the lion and the lamb. He's all-powerful. He roars. He's the creator. He conquered sin and death. He's the lion. But he's also the lamb that came of the tribe of Judah from the line of David. He's God in human flesh. He's the sacrifice for our sins. A lot of times, some people are more lion-like. They're strong. They're bold. They have the strength of God. And then there's some that are 
more like a lamb. They're approachable. They listen well. But very rarely do you see a lion and a lamb come together in one personality. And Jesus, as our Savior, he's the lion. He's all-powerful. But he's also the lamb, the humble servant who took our sin upon the cross where the kids felt like they could approach Jesus. Like, man, we can come sit on, on Jesus' lap. Can't you picture Jesus just loving on kids? He's the lion and he's the lamb. Also in this description of Jesus, he has seven horns. Remember the book of Revelations and symbols, it's, it's figurative. What do these seven horns speak of? They, they speak of his power, ultimate power. Seven eyes of his understanding, his knowledge that he sees everything And these seven eyes also represent the seven spirits of God sent into all of the earth. Several times in the book of Revelation, we keep reading of these seven spirits. It's not that there's seven Holy Spirits. We know there's one Holy Spirit, a member of of the Trinity. But the seven spirits speak of the fullness of the spirit that's present in Christ, that was present in his earthly ministry. In verse 7, then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Jesus was able to take the scroll. This shows the worthiness of Christ. This shows the perfection of Christ, the God-man, that he's able to take the scroll. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The 24 elders and the living creatures realize what a big deal this is. That Christ is worthy to open the seals and take, take the scroll. So they fall down in worship before the Lamb. They each have a harp in worship that they play before the Lord, but they also have these golden bowls full of incense. And the incense represents the prayers of the saints. It's the prayers of believers going before the throne room of God, going before the Lamb. In Psalms 141, verse 2, it says, Let my prayer be set before you as incense. Turn with me over to chapter 8. Let's look at the first three verses of Revelations chapter 8. This is the end of the opening of the seven seals. We'll get into this a lot more in weeks to come. And when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. What if we had a church service all gathered together like this, where we said we're just going to together be silent before the Lord for 30 minutes? It's one thing to be silent before the Lord individually, But what if we did that corporately? It'd probably really test us, wouldn't it? The throne room of God is this active, dynamic place where the voice of God is like a thunder. There's worship that's happening, and it just gets quiet for a half hour. Then this happens. I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then the angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar, 
He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. So as we're getting this picture of the throne room of God, we're seeing the prayers of believers go before the Lord, both in chapter 5 and chapter 8. Church, brothers and sisters in Christ, this is a great encouragement to us. Our prayers go right to the throne room of God. And oftentimes, our flesh and the enemy is so quick to try to get us to doubt prayer. See, God doesn't hear your prayers. It doesn't make a difference. They just bounce off the ceiling, and he hears your prayers. He's listening, and he's responding. And ultimately, there's this righteous judgment that comes with the seven seals and the seven trumpets in response to the prayers of the saints. Believers crying out, saying, Lord, would you make this right? Oh, he's going to make it right. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Be encouraged. God hears your prayers. Let's go back to chapter 5 and look at verse 9. In response to the worthiness of Christ, and they sang a new song, saying, They sing a new song to the Lord. Oftentimes, uh, new songs can test us or challenge us a little bit because we don't know the words. When the worship team brings a, a new song to us, what's your response? What's my response? I miss the old song. You know, I, I miss the song that I, I knew really well. And there's a place for songs that we know well to sing to the Lord. The 24 elders and the four living creatures are singing holy, holy, holy to the Lord. That's a song that they know well. But there's also a place for a new song. And Psalms 40 verse 3 says, He's put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. A new song speaks of a fresh work that God's doing in our life. It speaks of a greater understanding that we have of the Lord. And so here's this new song that the 24 elders sing to the Lord. And we get the chorus right here. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain. You've redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. You're worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? Because you were slain. So this is where we clearly understand the seals and the scrolls do speak of the judgment of God. And Jesus took the judgment of God as he was slain for our sins. And he's redeemed us. He's bought us back by his blood. The word redeemed means to, to buy back. We try to have something here at the church as a staff called Pitch It Day. You, you can imagine just all the stuff that collects in storage at a church. It's, it's got to be cleaned out and decide what's trash, what needs to get thrown away, what needs to be given away, what needs to be saved for future use. It's always interesting to watch everybody's personalities because some are quick to say, pitch it. Like we, the space is more valuable. Let's get rid of it. And then there's others that get real pensive and nervous. They're like, we might need to use that in 20 years from now. <laughs> I don't know that it's good stewardship to, to throw that away or, or give it away. 
And several years ago, up in the old high school room that's now the adult discipleship room, there was a pulpit that seemed like nobody was using. And so we're like, hey, let's give this away to Goodwill. Like, who's going to go buy a pulpit at Goodwill? I don't know. But <laughs> So we give it, give it away to Goodwill. And Spanish ministry meets Sunday mornings at 11, and they come in, and they go, where's our pulpit? Right? You gave away our, our pulpit. So what did we do? We went over to Goodwill, and we bought it back. <laughs> it was a redeemed pulpit, right? And it's still here at the church, get, getting used. And God redeemed us by his blood. He owned us the first time. He created us. But we, through our sin, sold ourselves to sin, and he went and paid the price by his blood to purchase us back so that we could belong to God. And notice this, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. This is interesting that in heaven... It doesn't cancel out your ethnicity. Isn't that really interesting? God made every tribe, every tongue, every people group, and he's proud of his creation. It's something that's glorious, that there is diversity in his creation of humanity that's represented in glory around the throne room of God. Every tribe, every tongue, all these different languages that the Lord has created are worshiping the Lord in this worthiness of Christ. That's what we're going to enter into when we get to heaven is to see the nations of the world glorify God around the throne room of God. So this teaches us a lot of things, doesn't it? It shows us that there's no room to be prejudiced inside of the gospel. Amen? Because we're coming against God's creation. For God so loved the world, the world, every tribe, every people group, the gospel belongs to. So is there a person or a group of people that we have left out of John 3.16? As we look at God's creation, has our heart gotten hard towards one group of people? Hopefully not, because there's no room for dis discrimination inside of the gospel. Also, we shouldn't try to eliminate culture. We shouldn't try to eliminate people groups because it's created by God. And the gospel is the great equalizer, isn't it? It brings us to this place where we see the love of God and we appreciate the way that God has made us to be redeemed by Jesus to be surrounding the throne room of God. It doesn't diminish one people group. It doesn't elevate another people group. It's the great equalizer. We're equal at the foot of Jesus. This is God's heart for us to have a heart for the nations. The Great Commission, Jesus said, go out and preach the gospel to all nations. God wants to see the nations come to know him. In no way perfectly as a church have we entered into this, but we do attempt as Rocky Mountain Calvary, our local fellowship here, we want to see the nations reached. We want to see the nations come to know Christ. We want to be part of Revelation chapter 5, that God would use us to see nations gathered around his throne. So there's several missionaries that we support and their cards are there, and the way that that works is tithes and offerings that come into the church, some of that goes to support local and international missions. So if you're giving to RMC, you're, you're supporting missionaries. 
Also, we have target countries that we focus on. We focus on Uganda, Mexico, and, and Peru. It's been awesome to see what God has done in Uganda. Kent and Becca moved there years ago now and have planted a work that is discipling pastors, Ugandan pastors. And that was really birthed out of what the Ugandan people went through with the LRA, the Lord's Resistance Army. Please don't misunderstand that there's no thing about the Lord in the LRA. And they were brutally kidnapping kids and forcing them to be soldiers. And God's done a a beautiful work there. And I want you to know, as our church family, by God's grace, there's going to be Ugandan believers that you've been able to impact simply by your giving to the Lord. And many of you have prayed and gone over there throughout the years. And it's been a weird season when it comes to missions because we haven't been able to do international trips. Normally we love to go visit our missionaries, do short-term trips, but we haven't been able to. Also Chihuahua, Mexico is a a focus country. Sean and Lisa went and pastored a church there. And Sean's back on staff and has been for many years now. And Pastor Rafa pastors the, the, the church. And it's impacting Chihuahua. And God raised up a ministry called Lightshine to impact the Taramara Indians. The Taramaras were a very unreached uh, people group, not far from here, but unreached. And we've seen many Taramara come to know the Lord through this child sponsorship to where now the Taramara are going back in the Copper Canyon to reach people for Jesus. And thankfully, by God's grace, when we get to heaven, we're going to see Taramara around the throne room of God. Guess what? Worshiping God in their own tongue. What a cool thing. The work in Peru, you can, can pray for uh, right now. Uh, Annie and Darwin are going through some challenges. Annie's going through some challenges with their health. But here's what I want you to hear with God's heart, is love the nations. I love the nations. And a lot of times we go, there's so much need here in Colorado Springs. Why would we worry about the nations? Oh yeah, we're concerned about Colorado Springs. We want to see people come to know Christ in Colorado Springs, but also throughout the world also throughout the world. Pick up one of those cards. Maybe as you go out and look at the the missions cards on on the wall and pray about, hey, is there one missionary that God wants me to pray for? An email. Maybe there's a a missionary that you know that's not connected to RMC. But I can tell you this. For churches and pastors and missionaries internationally, it's been a really difficult time, even harder than it's been in the United States And they haven't been able to receive the encouragement. And so let's flood them with emails. You know, the power of email. You used to write a missionary a letter and it would maybe get there in six months if you're lucky. You can have an email to them, you know, by the time the 11 o'clock service starts. Thinking about you, praying about you, you don't know me, but I want you to know your RMC family loves you. But the real heart of this is love the nations because God uh, loves the nations. God has made us kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. We're, by God's grace, elevated to the place where we get to be kings and priests to, to our God. Kings speak of ruling and reigning with Christ. Priests speak of our ministry to the Father in worship, and we shall reign on the earth. In verse 11, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, the elders, the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. The voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, 
and the elders, the number was countless. That's the idea. It's beyond a number that you can count. And they're saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Let's join in this chorus. Let's be one of these voices. Yes, in eternity, but right now to say, Jesus, you are worthy. You're worthy. Sometimes as churches, a church, and also as individuals, we can lose sight of the message of God. What what is this all about? What's the word of God all about? What is God passionate about? It's about the worthiness of Christ, that he came to die for sinners, that he's our savior, and he's worthy. He's worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory. We respond to his goodness and his grace by surrendering everything to him, surrendering our very lives to him. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and are such that are in the sea and all that's in them, I heard sing. So now all of creation joins in this chorus. Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever. Glory to the Father and glory to Christ who is the lamb. Remember when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem and the Pharisees start to get upset at the multitude for worshiping Christ? And Jesus says, hey, if you stop the multitude from praising me, what's going to happen? The rocks are going to cry out. Would have been the first rock concert. (laughs) And part of me was like, man, that would be cool to hear that, right? But here we get a glimpse of this, of all of creation, and even those that are under the sea are worshiping the Lord, giving honor and praise to Christ. Verse 14, then the four living creatures said, amen. And to the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. So what's the application of what we've read this morning, the throne room of God? The application is let's rejoice in the worthiness of Christ. How did last week go for you, for me? Did you have a vision of the throne room? Did you set your mind on things above? As you were going through the challenges of the week, Jesus, you're on the throne. It's really a change of thinking, isn't it? It's hard for us to keep that in mind when we're in the trenches of Monday morning, when we're in the difficulties of Wednesday afternoon. But Jesus really is on the throne. And he's the one who's worthy to open the seals, to open the scroll. And we get to rejoice in the worthiness of Christ. Hebrews 13, 15 says this, Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Let's stand together and let's pray. Jesus, you're worthy. We're so thankful that you came in human flesh, that you're the lion of the tribe of Judah, of the the root of David. You're the lamb. We didn't deserve it for you to take our sins upon yourself, to die, to be crucified, to be buried, to, to rise again. And we're looking forward to seeing you on the throne, the lamb who's slain before the foundations of the world. But also, too, we choose to rejoice right now. We choose to say thank you, Jesus. 
We thank you that we're redeemed. We thank you that we're robed in your righteousness. Give us a heart for the nations. Protect our, our hearts from being hard or being prejudiced. May we see all people groups through the blood of Jesus. Would you use our lives to touch the hearts of those that don't know you? So God, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.